Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Good evening, everyone. Uh, And we begin the readout tonight with the unpretty reality of the end of America's longest war. Now, as we speak, the Taliban is in full control of Afghanistan. They've even changed the name to the Islamic Emirate. It was an ending that few in the media at least anticipated, given that coverage of the war had declined to a minimum over the last decade, even as thousands of troops remained in that country in harm's way. Now, it's less clear what the Biden administration expected, though the president today indicated that the speed of the Taliban takeover took them at least somewhat by surprise. Now, in any case, the Taliban has now seized control of the country two decades after they were driven from Kabul by U.S. and NATO troops in the wake of the 9-11 attacks on New York and the Pentagon. The collapse of the Western-backed Afghan government was part of the big unpleasant surprise. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani quickly fled. The Afghan flag has been lowered and devastating images are emerging from the capital city. Thousands of people swarm the tarmac, hoping to flee on a departing U.S. military plane at Kabul airport, while others clung to the side of the plane. It's among these scenes of chaos that President Biden today made his first comments on the crisis since the fall of Kabul on Sunday. I stand squarely behind my decision. We were clear eyed about the risk. We plan for every contingency, but I always promise the American people that I will be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. By standing firm on his decision to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, the president also offered a visceral reminder of the living cost of war. How many more lives, American lives, is it worth? How many endless rows of headstones at Arlington National Cemetery? I'm clear on my answer. We'll end America's longest war. I am president of the United States of America. And the buck stops with me. Now, it is not, however, the end of the war for Afghans, many of whom are now fearing for their lives, either because they helped U.S. troops or because they had begun to enjoy the freedoms of living in a more modern era and open society under the protection of American troops. Those who have to fear the most from the arch-conservative religious zealot Taliban are girls and women, including one of Afghanistan's female mayors, who said to a British newspaper that she is waiting for the Taliban to come and kill her. While the pressure is on President Biden to figure out how to free as many Afghans who want out as possible, this crisis wasn't born eight days ago. It's been a decades-long war that we've been steadily losing. And as the Washington Post reported in 2019, Throughout those years, senior U.S. officials failed to tell the truth, making rosy pronouncements that they knew to be false 
and hiding unmistakable evidence that the war had become unwinnable. They note that U.S. generals almost always preach that the war is progressing well, no matter the reality on the battlefield. While the Bush administration started and then largely abandoned the Afghan war to send most of the U.S. troops to Iraq, and the Obama administration got Osama bin Laden but still kept the war going, the current withdrawal plan was authored by the third president in line to fight the nation dubbed the death of empires, Donald Trump. It was Donald Trump who wrote America's exit strategy and and bragged about it. In fact, Trump campaigned on ending endless wars a sentiment popular with Americans on the right and on the left. But it's how Trump negotiated the end of the war that set the stage for the problems that we're seeing now. His secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, sat down with the Taliban in Qatar after cooler heads prevented Trump from inviting the Taliban to Camp David for talks. He agreed to the release of some 5,000 prisoners and relaxed sanctions on Taliban officials. Many of those released prisoners went right back to the battlefield to fight for the Taliban. And the Washington Post reports that the deal left Afghan soldiers demoralized. And after Biden announced his plans for withdrawal, basically picking up the Trump timeline and extending it by a few months, Trump said that getting out of Afghanistan is a wonderful and positive thing to do, though he's now deleted that from his website. At that time, in April of this year, The Taliban already controlled or were contesting up to half of the country. Joining me now is independent journalist Nita Khan, Bobby Ghosh, a Bloomberg opinion editorial board member, and Jonathan Lemire, White House reporter for the Associated Press. Nita, I want to start with you because you and I were texting about this over the weekend as I was watching the coverage take place. And you sent me an article that you'd written in 2019 in which it sounded like you could have written it this weekend. You talked about the collapse of the war strategy and the fact that the Taliban had basically taken over half the country. Talk to me a little bit about the conditions that were existing before the withdrawal and the collapse of Kabul. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Joy. I'm really happy to be on your show, but it's so unfortunate that it's under these circumstances. Uh, You know, first and foremost, I want to give my thoughts to the Afghani people, uh, to the other foreign nationals that are there, you know, literally clinging on to any hope that they can, desperate for their lives. You know, you just showed the images of people jumping on a plane, the level of desperation and the heartache. I mean, you can't even watch some of these videos. It's so, so tragic. And thank you also for highlighting highlighting that piece that I did in 2019, because unfortunately, you know, we don't pay enough attention to international news on a on a large level. You know, we might do a little bit of coverage here and there. There's tons of great reporters that are doing great coverage, but they're in the national conversation. The It's not raised to the level that it should be. And the piece that I did in 2019 was on it touched on the Afghanistan papers that you just mentioned and on the fact that civilians have been dying left and right from all ends of the spectrum for years. In 2018, it was Amnesty International and the United States uh, Assistance Mission in Afghanistan that said that the highest levels of civilians that were killed in Afghanistan was in that year, including the highest number of children that were killed. And at that time, just in the first half of 2019, the Taliban gained more territory than at any other time since 2001. So it begs the question what everybody's asking now, what were we doing for the last two decades? And the American 
American people really need to hold our elected officials, our military officials and everybody accountable because we have not received a full accounting for the two trillion dollars that have been spent. And instead, we've seen hundreds, uh, tens of thousands of Afghani civilians that have been killed, thousands of our own soldiers that have been killed, Afghani soldiers that have been killed and all for what? You know, and meanwhile, other people have been profiting off of this. You know, we could get into a conversation about, you know, contractors and people that have made money from this. But instead of spending that two million dollars over there, that money could have been spent here. And why have people like George Bush, Rumsfeld, Cheney, Wolfowitz, all the neocons in 2001 that brought us to this place, to this position? Why have they all been able to walk off into the sunset? You know, George Bush is off painting somewhere. He gave Michelle Obama a piece of candy one time. So all is forgiven. I mean, it's just outrageous that there's no accountability for all of this madness that has been done. You know, and one of the things that's been going on, Bobby, is there's been a lot of sort of happy talk uh, coming out, um, you know, regardless of the fact that even Liz Cheney said, look, you know, lots of presidents bear responsibility. She didn't mention her dad's administration that quit the war to go over and fight in Iraq and left very few troops behind after we'd actually made some successes. But one of the things that has been going on is let me just play for you. These are from 2008, 2011, and 2016. These were various you know, military leaders talking about how, in their view, the war was going. The truth is, is that I, I, I feel like, you know, we're making some steady progress. It's a slow win, I guess, is probably uh, what we're accomplishing right on over here. We have not won. We have not completed this mission. But I do believe we are in the process of making significant progress here. We have seen definitive growth and progress in a couple of areas. That, that's not what I'm reading about the way things were actually going, Bobby. Well, you know, politicians and sometimes generals will say things like that because they're speaking to a particular constituency and for particular political or sort of funding requirements. But the fact is we've had brave colleagues, journalists on the ground for the past 20 years, warning repeatedly over and over again that things were going badly. Plenty of non-government agencies, plenty of human rights uh, organizations, plenty of independent observers were making the same point over and over again. It won't do now for uh, any American administration, current or past, to claim that they were misinformed. There were plenty of sources of information. If you only choose to uh, pay attention to the ones that fit your own narrative, then the blame lies on you and not on what is going on on the ground. It's really disheartening, for instance, to hear President uh, Biden and uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan now say, well, the Afghans didn't stand in front. 66,000 Afghan soldiers and policemen have died in the past 20 years. 66,000 have died fighting the Taliban. It is dishonorable to claim that they didn't do their part. Um, that is, to give you a context, that is 20 times the American casualties in Afghanistan. These people have fought, fought bravely, fought to the best of their abilities. They were poorly trained. Um, and by contractors who have very little oversight and very little accountability, and yet they fought. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's very distressing to hear, I'm now in London, but to, to, to follow the conversation that's taking place in Washington, where people seem to be rewriting history, rewriting facts as they play out on the ground and pretending we could not have seen this coming. Yes, we could. Yes, we did. We said so repeatedly. If people weren't listening, it's on them.
Well, I mean, the, the one thing that I will say with you just for a moment, Bobby, that I think we, one person who didn't stay and fight was the president of Afghanistan. I mean, he's fled the country. He didn't seem to stick around long to try to defend his people. Yeah. And while Our you had a lot of brave Af Afghans who fought, obviously fought beside us, who were now trying to quickly get out of the country, there was a really uh, interesting piece by a guy named Carter Malkazian. And he, he talked about the fact, after speaking with a Taliban religious scholar, that the difference between the Afghan army and the Taliban is that the Taliban fight for belief, for Janat, heaven, and Ghazi, killing infidels. The army and police fight for money. The Taliban are willing to lose their head to fight. How can the army and police compete? So it seems to me that one of the things that I'm not an, obviously an expert in this, but as soon as the American backing and all of the infrastructure was gone, it wasn't a hard conversion for the Taliban to take over. So I don't know that that's impugning Afghan fighters more generally, but it doesn't seem like they had the same fight in them anymore, perhaps because they were demoralized. You know, once you remove air power, then uh, it becomes hard for ground forces. No American ground forces anywhere in the world fight without air cover. It's a little unrealistic and unreasonable to expect uh, other armies to do likewise. We in the United States have a professional army people who go to war for salaries. It's it's not unreasonable to for Afghans to do likewise. Um, could, they have, could there have been stronger fighting? Yes, they could have. Did the president of Afghanistan send a terrible message by fleeing? Absolutely, he did. Perhaps he remembers what happened to the last president who did not flee when, uh, when extremists took over his capital. He was hung from a lamppost in Kabul. Um, that's not to suggest that the current president should have done the same thing. And by the way, He's our man in Afghanistan. We helped prop him up. We helped keep him in power, despite his being profoundly unpopular, despite him being profoundly corrupt. So, you know, yeah, that, that, this is not necessarily an argument uh, for the, the Afghans uh, to be completely uh, exonerated. But we have to understand that they didn't simply walk away from a fight. They were badly led, they were badly trained, they were badly let down by their own political uh, uh, leadership, as well as by the United States. Uh, let, Jonathan, let, let's go to the United States uh, administration for just a moment, because I think one of the real casualties of this, and I would have to argue the Iraq war as well, is this idea of the United States nation building, right? And going around attempting sort of to erect sort of Western style democracies in places where we're fighting a war for some other reason. Um, in this case, you know, the president was really blunt. In making, I was tweeting this earlier, it's kind of ironic that he's the one kind of making the America first argument, that we're not going to send another troop to go and, and die in a country where it's not clear what the mission is at this point since we've gotten bin Laden. Um, what is the White House thinking now? Because, uh, you know, there is a sense that they are working on trying to expedite visas. There's talk of up to 20,000 people who could come out um, sort of under State Department auspices and getting out the people who helped us. But beyond that, what is the thinking on what our role would be there anyway. It seems like they've pretty come down pretty firmly that it's to protect American interests and that's it. Yeah, the president was remarkably candid today, Joy, in his assessment of the situation in Afghanistan, that we shouldn't be nation building, he argued, that our mission there was to find Osama bin Laden, route al-Qaeda, force the Taliban out, uh, and prevent Afghanistan from being a safe harbor for terror groups. And he said for over 20 years, for the most part, that happened. And it was time to come out. And he said he was not going to. 
He said it emphatically. He was not going to ask a fifth U.S. president to be the commander in chief of forces in Afghanistan. Certainly his decision to withdraw uh, troops uh, received a lot of criticism from both sides of the aisle and in the international community. He defended vociferously today his decision to leave. Now, what he did not do is offer a defense of how the exit has taken part. And I think it would be hard to muster much of that. They, U.S. officials acknowledged they were caught by surprise by how quickly the Taliban advanced. Yes, they blamed the Afghan forces for more or less laying down their arms for part of it. But they admit they were caught off guard. And that led to these horrific images uh, at the airport in Kabul today uh, with people falling to their death, trying to cling onto an airplane uh, as it took off uh, from the airstrip there. Uh, but we don't expect a course correct. Here, The president was firm on that. The, yes, he sent a few thousand troops there this weekend to help with the evacuations uh, to get U.S. personnel out to try to get Afghan citizens, translators in particular, who helped the U.S. Uh, for years to try to get them to safety. But there wouldn't be a return uh, to any sort of occupying force, to any sort of permanent presence there. He made clear that's not what he wants to do. And in fact, his aides have said the swift collapse of the Afghan government in the recent days actually affirms their decision to leave, basically making this argument that if we were there for 20 years, White House aides say, and this is what we got. We spent 20 years and trillions of dollars and to see the Afghan forces get overrun in a matter of weeks, what good would it have done? What difference would it have made to spend another six months or a year? So there's no second guessing the decision to leave, but there is some questions being asked about how they chose to do it. Yeah, I think and I think the, the main point now is what they do next in terms of making sure that people who want out get out. I want to very quickly before we lose you guys uh, play a little bit of Taliban spokesman. I mean, they're they're definitely feeling pretty good about things. So they're off doing TV. Uh, spokesman Suhail Shaheen did an interview with our, our great colleague Ayman Mohideen earlier, claiming that they're not going to punish those who worked with Americans. Take a listen. But will you punish and those we, who worked we, with we, the we Americans? Have, we, we have permission. Will you punish those that worked with the Americans? We will not punish them, and uh, we will not pose any risk to them, to their property, and to their life. Uh, It is our policy. We have issued the, uh, the official statement in this regard. It would seem, Nita, that the, it is in the interest of this Taliban government, if they want to not be an international pariah, um, to not openly start going after people who helped Americans. At least that's what you would assume. Um, but it, I want you to speak to that, because it, it's hard to believe that when you know the history of the Taliban. Oh, please. Exactly. Like we're supposed to believe him and believe the Taliban. We're already seeing reports of them going door to door, even harassing journalists that were reporting on this, people that were helping the United States and other Western uh, forces that were there. So we're already seeing a huge backlash. This is why you're seeing so many Afghani people literally trying to run for their lives. And it's so tragic. It's so sad. And it's the innocent civilians that are always caught in the middle of this. You know, it's something like 2.8 million refugees in the world are Afghani refugees, basically about one in 10. And let's remember during the Trump years, we lowered the refugee admission to the lowest possible level that it ever had been. And also many European countries had shut their door to refugees and sent them back to places like Afghanistan. And that was before all of this happened. So I cannot even imagine what's going to take place afterwards. And countries, you know, neighboring countries like Pakistan has something like 1.4 million Afghani refugees. Iran has about a million. And now you're seeing a 
huge influx that's going to be going there as well, too. And you're talking about destabilizing those countries even further in that entire region. It's just horrible all around. And I just yeah. really wish that the American people would just hold our leaders more accountable. And for the younger people that are watching to remember that all the anti-war protests and the people who did speak out in 2001 were instantly labeled unpatriotic or un-American. Yeah. I, I was called a terrorist sympathizer, like all kinds of crazy things. And now look, 20 years later, suddenly everybody's like, oh, we should have gone in. And by the way, Enjoy. again, yeah, very quickly, go ahead, Bobby. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that we should take no comfort in the idea that the Taliban will behave in one way or the other, because otherwise they would become international pariahs. Become, becoming pariahs suits them perfectly. They, they want care. nothing more than to be left alone to run their country to the ground. They do not care about being part of any international community. They do not care about aid. They do not care about foreign investments. We yeah. should not expect them to behave in what we would consider irrational uh, uh, behavior. Well, well uh, we will definitely be watching. Unfortunately, uh, that sounds pretty realistic to me. Uh, Nita Khan, Bobby Ghosh, Jonathan Lemire, thank you all very much. And up next on The Readout, the politics of the end of the war in Afghanistan and the brazen but probably predictable hypocrisy from the right. Plus, Pfizer makes its case for a third COVID vaccination shot as the fight continues to get even as the fight continues to get even one shot into the arms of millions of Americans. And if not for Afghanistan, the devastation in Haiti would be the biggest story in the world. More than a thousand lives lost in Saturday's earthquake, just the latest in a series of crushing blows for the Caribbean nation. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. Mistake of staying and fighting indefinitely in a conflict that is not in the national interest of the United States. Of doubling down on a civil war in a foreign country. Of attempting to remake a country through the endless military deployments of U.S. forces. It is not what the American people want. It is not what our troops, who have sacrificed so much over the past two decades, deserve. In his remarks on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, President Biden acknowledged that as commander-in-chief, the buck stops with him. But as he faces attacks from the right and unrelenting criticism from the media, it's important to remember that this withdrawal, again, didn't begin under his administration. It was Biden's predecessor who not only set the plan in motion, but who continued to defend it over just this summer. I started the process. All the troops are coming back home. They couldn't stop the process. 21 years is enough, don't we think? 21. They couldn't stop the process. They wanted to, but 
It was very tough to stop the process. Joining me now is David Korn, Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones and the author of a new newsletter, This Land, and Tom Nichols, contributing writer for The Atlantic. Um, one of my favorite contrarians, Tom, I want to go with you first. I find it ironic, right? The one thing that sort of Trump curious liberals liked about him and found not objectionable about him was this thing he would say about no more endless wars. They agreed with that. Right. And now it is it is it is ironic in a way that it's Biden. Let me play this for you. This is Biden voicing the non sort of, you know, white nationalist version of America first, pretty bluntly in his interview with CBS uh, with CBS. Take a listen. But then don't you bear some responsibility for the outcome if the Taliban ends up back in control and women end up losing the rights? No, I don't. Look, are you telling me that we should go into China because go to war with China because what they're doing to the Uyghurs, a million Uyghurs in the, out in the West in concentration camps? The responsibility I have is to protect America's na national self-interest and not put our women and men in harm's way to try to solve every single problem in the world by use of force. I mean, like it or not, Tom, I think most Americans agree with that. And that's why we're pulling out. I mean, the, the criticism here is that Biden is screwing up the execution of an idea that everybody wants to do. Um, and, I, and, you know, I think he's going to have to own that. I, I think this will be a case study in a bad policy execution of a, of a good policy uh, for a long time to come, because the more immediate things about are there enough you know, did we get enough people out? Are there enough planes? These are things that are within Biden's control and he can't lay them off on his predecessor. But Biden is right that, you know, the American people, insofar as they seem to care about this or when they choose to care about it, have consistently said for three or four, really, if you count the end of Bush's administration, that, you know, to every president, we want you to leave this place. And every president says, well, I, I'd really like to, but I can't because, of bureaucracy and alliance issues and military advice and so on. And Biden finally just said, OK, I'm going to give you what you want. And now there are people saying, well, I didn't really want that. I didn't know that, you know, pulling out was going to look like this. Well, there was no version of this that ended differently. There were versions of it that maybe ended with less bloodshed and less horror and less, you know, just chaos on the ground. But the Taliban taking over this country again, that was what you know, the American public, whether it realized it or not, that's what they said they preferred over staying there. Yeah. And, and and also the Taliban is not like they're different now than they were before. This is how they are. Right. So this is what one should have expected. You know, David, the, the, the thing that is very difficult to listen to is Republicans, you know, screaming that, you know, there should be, you know, Kevin, Kevin McCarthy ripping the strategy, calling for investigations. He won't even investigate the January 6th insurrection. Some other random Republican, Jeff Van Drew, uh, saying Biden, uh, Kamala Harris and Speaker Pelosi all should resign. Rick Scott, the guy who took a bunch of money, uh, his company took a bunch of money from uh, Medicaid and Medicare and TRICARE. Serious questions of Joe Biden's removal from office. None of these people care about this. Um, it's hard for me to listen to because you had 16 House Republicans vote against more visas for Afghan allies. They didn't want those people to come here. Now they're acting like they care so much about them. You had uh, the Mike Pompeo posing in a picture with the guy who's now running Afghanistan saying, look at this great deal that we put together. This was Trump's policy and they loved it. Now they're deleting all of their tweets. And, uh, and uh, even Trump is deleting his there it is. There's Mike Pompeo. Your thoughts, David. Of course, Trump last year wanted to have a summit with the Taliban on 
at Camp David. And, you know, people thought, well, you know, he finally was talked out of that. You know, for 20 years, the American public has been fed nothing but lies. I hate to say that, nothing but lies about Afghanistan, about what we could do there and what we couldn't do there. You know, you referenced this earlier on in the show with a story that Washington Post did in 2019. Doug Lute, who was the Afghan czar for both the Bush, George W. Bush administration and Barack Obama in 2015, told government interviewers, we don't know what we're doing. We have no clue. We're devoid of a fundamental understanding um, of what's happening in Afghanistan. And he was guy in charge. And so now we, we get to this point where, um, you know, none of those Republicans were speaking out now, and many of the Democrats actually, too, never cared about the steady flow of lies. It was, I have to say this, was bipartisan. It happened during the Obama-Biden administration as well with, that Joe Biden was part of. So I think, you know, we have never had an honest debate, an honest discussion in this country. So we're not prepared to to look at what's happening now, which is horrific. And I feel for the Afghans, and I do think there are questions about the implementation of, of this policy. But we've never given a real damn collectively as a nation about what's going on there, about the war, even the warriors who served, who come back to silence and without much coverage in the media that we're all part of. Um, it's um, and to, but to see the Republicans now trying to exploit the lies, the ignorance, the 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 the, the uncaring just to score political points while Afghans are truly, you know, in a, in a troubled condition. You know, I, I want to say, Joy, I'm surprised, but I'm yeah. not. Yeah, surprise is dead, along with irony. I mean, look, the RNC had a piece up that you now get a 404 a page error that was touting the withdrawal, right? So it's kind of difficult to see it. I, I just want to know, what is the, what's the uh, over-under on how fast the pivot goes, Tom, from— we have failed the Afghans to, you can't bring 20,000 of those people here. They're Muslim, right? Well, that's a sucker bet because it's already happening. Uh, you know, there are Republicans already saying, can't bring those people here. Um, you know, they, that uh, you can't flood the United States with these uh, terrible immigrants. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the idea that the Republicans were like, hey, I mean, that out of this is as predictable as a sunrise. Part of the problem and I think this is the problem that Biden faced. And, and I think really, I'll even say that Trump faced. The, the American public pretty much wanted to make decisions about this war based on wherever they think their political opponents weren't. Right. And their biggest concern was, well, if the other guy might get credit and this is something that makes me look like I'm agreeing with somebody else, then I've, I've got to pick the other thing. And, you know, the American the American public does not have a stable set of preferences about this other than a kind of general reflex of getting out. I'll, I'll take issue with David about one thing uh, about the lies. You know, people like General Lute said this stuff in public. The, this wasn't like, you know, some secret conclave behind the doors of the Pentagon. And the American public sort of shrugged and went, OK, well, but, you know, there's no more terrorist attack. And um, it's all being done by volunteers, and I don't want to think about it. I'm, I have, you know, I have TV to watch, and yeah. you know and that I, is uh, that really is on us. 
And the reality is the way you know about it is that after we got bin Laden during the Obama administration, most Americans didn't give Afghanistan another thought until right now when they're looking through their politics to see how do I need to feel about this based, as you said, on where your politics are. Just like with the vaccine, it's just bananas. It's where we are. David Korn, Tom Nichols, thank you both. Really appreciate you still add. Important new information about the vaccine, booster shots. As U.S. health officials warned that unvaccinated Americans are, quote, sitting ducks for the potentially deadly Delta variant. Stay with us. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. As the latest COVID surge rips through communities in all 50 states, the number of hospitalized children reached a record high over the weekend. And the number of hospitalized people in their 30s has also hit new highs. The surge is most concentrated in the South, which has some of the lowest vaccination rates. Dr. Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health, called the unvaccinated people sitting ducks for the Delta variant. Collins said he wouldn't be surprised if the nation sees 200,000 cases a day in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, Texas, which is already facing a dire lack of ICU beds, requested five mortuary trailers from the federal government. One day after the Texas Supreme Court backed up Republican Governor Greg Abbott's idiotic mask mandate ban, temporarily halting orders in two counties. But the Dallas school district says it will continue with its order despite the court's decision. And in yet another sign of how toxic and violent the fight has become over basic safety measures like masks. A standoff in front of Los Angeles City Hall over the weekend turned into a brawl between anti-vaccine protesters and counter-protesters. The L.A. Times reports one man was stabbed and a reporter for the local NPR station tweeted that he was shoved, kicked and his eyeglasses were ripped off his face. Joining me now is Dr. Vin Gupta, critical care pulmonologist and health policy expert. We've been down this entire road, Dr. Dr. Gupta. I, I've, I was joking with my team that you sort of become my TV primary care physician. I feel like we're on TV so much together. We've gone from being both in horror at the death toll to watching people beat up journalists and try to rip people's masks off their faces over their disbelief that COVID is real. I just, as a physician, have to get your, how does that hit you? Good evening, Joy. Great to see you. You know, I, I'll say this. I'm hopeful about what full approval of the vaccines, especially Pfizer by Labor Day, will mean. Domino's joy will fall. It's going to allow the military to more comfortably mandate the vaccine, school districts, colleges, universities, other organizations. However, I'm concerned about the winter ahead. And, and what do I mean by that? Will you, in certain zip codes, Joy, be able to get the care you and your family Speaking to all your viewers out there in these zip codes, particularly in the southeast of the United States, will they be able to get the care that they need and deserve if they need, say, ICU level care? And what do I mean by that? Elective procedures now across the country, even here in the Pacific Northwest, are being delayed again. And people are tired of that. Well, also, what we're noticing is the rise of other health threats are reemerging in a big way. Respiratory syncytial virus, Joy, 
basically a big virus that can affect kids, usually December to February, is causing children's hospitals across the country to fill up with RSV patients. So this is a really critical time here for us to rethink, well, how do we think about care rationing? in the ICU especially, and how might that motivate the unvaccinated to get vaccinated? This is where these types of incentives are key. We should be thinking about the same, the same paradigm we use for organ donation, responsible choices. You can't get a liver if you had a drink in the last six months. Well, it turns yeah. out you shouldn't, you should be fully vaccinated if you get these advanced things like ECMO, uh, dialysis, you name it. We can go into greater detail, yeah. but we need to have that paradigm. And to, to think, you have to think that way because, I mean, I'm looking here at a Huffington Post um, headline that says in, in Dallas County, there are no ICU beds, not not a few, but zero ICU beds left for children. Um, you're right. It's getting harder for people. If you break your leg or have a heart attack, you've now got to compete with these COVID patients who I'm still watching video. I was watching Vice News video today of people with COVID denying they have COVID and still saying they won't get the vaccine. Given that, how are we even going to move to the point of us doing booster shots when we can't even get people to take the first shot? Well, I think this is important, and this is why Pfizer and Moderna need to stop with the press releases and confusing the American public, saying that everybody needs a booster shot. And this is where public health really needs to be clear here. So for all your viewers out there, Joy, we need to be clear about who needs that third shot. If they've gotten two shots of the vaccine, I believe you're fully vaccinated with two shots of the yes. vaccine, Pfizer and Moderna in this case. That third shot, we need to have an inclusive definition of who is who has an immunocompromising medical condition. So that's just not somebody who had a solid organ transplant, it's in a high doses of medications. It's the poorly controlled diabetic, of which there are many across the country. That's an immunocompromising medical condition. For the rest of us, if you're otherwise healthy, less than 65, you do not need a booster shot. And I agree okay. with global health agencies that we need to be vaccinating the rest of the world. Yes. Please send some to Jamaica. I was just there not long ago, and they're only like three or four percent vaccinated, and they take COVID very seriously. The last thing I have to ask you about, and this is, has happened a few times, there have been a few breakthrough cases that have become news stories that then also turn people against getting vaccinated. There was a Southwest Airlines uh, pilot who was flying back and forth. He was doing extra flights. He was young. He was both. He had both. He had taken you know both shots. What do you say to people who say, "We'll see." That guy got vaccinated, and now he he died of COVID. Well, I saw that story, and that's an incredibly sad, tragic story. And, and yet, that's uh, that's the one in a million case in the t in the case of an individual that's young, otherwise healthy, two shots. Joy, that happens one in a million times, based on data from the Kaiser Family Foundation that studied the incidence of vaccine breakthrough infection across twenty five states. Just testing positive was a rare event, one in ten thousand cases, much less ending up in the hospital. So that was a rare, tragic event. These vaccines work. We need a trust in that. We need a message on the broad data, not the anecdotes. And lastly, if I may, uh, uh, research just came out, Joy, for everybody living in the country, since everybody's exposed to wildfire smoke to some degree, even you yeah. in New York, me here in Seattle. It's been shown now, wildfire smoke diminishes your immune system's response, its ability to respond to COVID. Couple, it makes people more predisposed to infection with COVID. What we need here is we need more people to think about quality of masking. We've talked about three-ply masks. Now we need yep. to be thinking about KN95 masks. And so I know people will talk about this, and you know I'm happy to answer questions offline. But KN95 masks, quality masks, really vital. 
That is what I have now. I have moved up. I was doing the doctor mask under my cloth, like like cloth mask match to my outfits, of course. Uh, but now I'm going with the KN95. You're absolutely right. And for planes, I go N95. I'm sorry. I go all the way when it comes to flying on a plane. You got to be careful. It's better to be masked than to be intubated. Think about that for a second. And listen to Dr. Gupta. Don't be listening to your TikTok, whatever people that you think are experts. Dr. Vin Gupta, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. And up next... Humanitarian teams are racing against the clock after another devastating earthquake in Haiti with a tropical storm bearing down on an island already reeling from COVID and the recent assassination of its president. We'll be right back. Haiti is facing yet another calamity, this time a devastating earthquake on Saturday. It toppled buildings, homes, hospitals, and historic cathedrals. And it also sent traumatized Haitians who survived the 2010 earthquake into the streets, where many remain for fear of aftershocks. More than 1,400 people have died, and that number is almost certain to rise. The 7.2 magnitude quake hit the southwestern part of Haiti, which is roughly 80 miles west of the capital, Port-au-Prince. According to the Miami Herald, earthquake victims with broken bones and open wounds filled a hospital courtyard in a rural coastal city. A former government official told the paper that hospitals were at capacity. More than a decade ago, a similar quake left nearly a quarter of a million Haitians dead and one million displaced. The quake comes just one month after the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse left the country mired in political instability. And joining me now is Gary Pierre Pierre, founder and publisher of the Haitian Times. And Gary, just please lay out for us the, the catastrophe and what the current status is in Haiti, particularly in Port-au-Prince. Well, uh, Joy, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, let me remind our viewers that you and I met the, for the first time during 2010 when I was yes. covering the earthquake for you. You were at the root at the time. Uh, thank you. Oh, for at the Grio, at the Grio. But we love the root too. But I was at the I was at their competition, the the Grio. Don't want them texting me. <laughs> Sorry about that. But uh, right now, Port-au-Prince is largely uh, intact. Nothing happened in Port-au-Prince. And thankfully, okay. because Port-au-Prince is teeming with people. And then last time, uh, half a million people or so died, or a quarter of a million people died. But this time, it's in the southern part, as you said in your intro, that there, what's going on right now, there's a rush to, to try to save people who are stuck under the rubbles. As you can see, people are uh, uh, using their bare hands trying to really get to, to, to folks who are still alive. Now, the international rescue, some are, are on the ground, the Chileans are on the ground, uh, the Cubans are on the ground, and, and the Americans are on the ground. So there is really help coming up uh, for that region. And, and, and so right now, you mentioned about the, the political situation. It is tenuous at best. Uh, we, we, we're not sure how strong the, the, the current government is in managing this crisis. And so we're looking and, and taking uh, our cues from them because that's what they're saying. They want everybody to follow their lead and, uh, until they ask for something, you know, they ask us to stand by. Well, that is the challenge here, right, is you did have this coup, right? You had the president assassinated. You have the new pres uh, prime minister, Ariel, uh, Prime Minister Ariel Henry, who's declared a one month uh, state of emergency. But how trusted is the government at this point? 
Well, not very well trusted at any point for that matter. I mean, you know, uh, the government doesn't have any capacity. As a matter of fact, Joy, the government had to negotiate with the gangs so they could allow free passage to the uh, southern region to access the, 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 those injuries and, 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 and presumably dead. And, and, and so it, it's really unsure. We're hoping and, and I'm, I'm, we're really praying that the government will show the world that it has some capacity to manage this crisis because this is on top of of another existing crisis. We have the COVID. Yes. We have to remember, you know, your first uh, uh, block before me, you were talking to Dr. Gupta about COVID. Well, COVID is still in Haiti as well. And, yeah. and so there's a lot of uh, crisis happening at the same time right now. And, and, and for a lot of Americans, uh, you know, whether they are, you know, have Haitian-American friends or just care about humanity, would love to help. But it's it's difficult to figure out how to do it. Who? What are the trusted entities and agencies that people should be thinking about if they want to help? Well, we have... We have on the Haitian time a list of five organizations that we've known. We've worked with them for over the years, some over 20 years or more. And so we can stake a reputation that these organizations are reputable. They will do a great job. So uh, I, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but they're on our yeah. site. And they, they, they are doing work. They've been doing good work in Haiti. And, and so we trust that once they, they have the resources, they can execute the plans. If you would uh, tweet out um, or post on your site, as you just said, I'll retweet that so that people, because people are constantly asking me how to help. Uh, Gary Pierre, my friend, I, I, we need to talk on positive circumstances one day. Uh, Haiti's a beautiful country, and we are praying for everyone there. Thank you so much, my friend. Really appreciate you. All right, and up next, Biden administration officials are finally sounding the alarm about the grave threats to voting rights all across the country. We'll be back after this. Before we go tonight, an update on the fight for voting rights with Republican legislatures across the country moving to restrict those rights. Kristen Clark, head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, told a House Judiciary Subcommittee today that it is critical for Congress to pass voting rights legislation. The progress that we have made is fragile as we watch the current resurgence in attacks on voting rights. For the Justice Department, restoration of the Voting Rights Act is a matter of great urgency. Congress has broad enforcement powers and must act now to restore the Voting Rights Act to prevent us from backsliding into a nation where millions of citizens, particularly citizens of color, find it difficult to register, pass their ballot, and elect candidates of choice. Ms. Clark also warned that the current round of gerrymandering could result in even more suppression unless Congress acts now to protect voters. And that's tonight's readout. Stay here with MSNBC tonight for the very latest on the unfolding situation in Afghanistan. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.